62. If you want to find Isaiah 62, it's after Psalms, so you might flip open your Bible halfway and go from there. You've probably noticed the colors have changed. Uh, Last week they were white, this week they are green. We find ourselves as a church in the middle of the season of Epiphany, and we dawn that time with green as it is a common time of growth. And we're growing into the knowledge and wisdom of the revealed sonship and Sonship of Christ, our Messiah. So I got mixed up there. Psalm, or Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5. Because I love Zion, Isaiah writes, I will not keep still. Because my heart yearns for Jerusalem, I cannot remain silent. I will not stop praying for her until her righteousness shines like the dawn and her salvation blazes like a burning torch. The nations will see your righteousness. World leaders will be blinded by your glory. And you will be given a new name by the Lord's own mouth. The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see. A splendid crown in the hand of God. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. Some translations that you're reading out of might just say the word married. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem. Just as a young man commits himself to his bride, then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps you remember the times that your kids were toddlers, or maybe you have a toddler now, or perhaps by some divine miracle you can remember when you were a toddler I want to talk about toddlers. It's great to have our children with us this morning. Children, welcome. Next week, we will have regular children's churches planned, but it is such a privilege to have you. I want to talk about a time in your life that was not that long ago for you. Uh, What is up with toddlers liking to destroy anything that resembles a tower? Has anybody ever had a tower destroyer in your home? Yeah, the other day I had a books. I'm studying. I've got books. You know, it's a miracle that I was studying to begin with, you know. Here I am. I finally, this ADD kid's got a track of focus, and I'm studying, and Ben comes into the room. Ben has learned two things in his life. He's learned how to destroy towers and how to say the word poop. He, I don't... I don't know about the connection, but he loves it. He walks in. You know, the toddlers aren't graced with uh, a presence about them that is kind. It's like all or nothing. And so you can hear him stomping his way through the house. I knew he was coming. A rebel yell adorned his mouth, and he goes, Tower! <laughs> Knocks my books down, and then goes, <laughs> Daggy poop. <laughs> and leaves the room. I put the books back together, and all is fun and games until Sissy says, my four-year-old daughter Hadley says, Daddy, look, I built a tower for Elsa. Reckon, do you have a sticker for me? Okay, great. I won't be able to finish this sermon without a sticker for you. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you. 
got my sticker from Brecken. She helps us. Each week that Brecken is here, she'll walk around and give you a sticker. So you know you have a special election this morning if you get a sticker from, from Brecken. Sissy says, Daddy, I have built a tower for Elsa. I said, oh, sweetheart, you have, that's great. So I walk into the living room to see this wooden tower that in her imagination is a fit to be a princess's castle. And Ben, hearing the word castle, comes storming out of his room, running into the living room. Ha, poop! Boom! <laughs> down, down goes the tower and the rebel call. And uh, he laughs and giggles and runs away. And Sissy is destroyed in the destruction of her once proud tower. There she is. I, I'm, I'm interested. Why is it that as toddlers, we first learn how to knock down towers before we learn how to build them? Ben's in the building him now, but before he was able to build him, he loved to knock him down. What is it about human nature in which we first learn how to knock things down before we learn how to build them up? This morning, I think I'm most interested in speaking to you a word of hope. My belief, specifically in hope, that God is moving in promise. That God is moving in promise amongst communities within this specific community even to call forward builders architects, visionaries, and dreamers to stimulate one another in love, to build up the kingdom of God and to put on full display the love of Christ. But, unfortunately, just like toddlers, before we build, we most often have to look and survey our own destruction. So how are things rebuilt after they've been destroyed? How is a city built after it's been destroyed? Or a life, or a job, a home, or your faith, a family, or your own good name? Of course, it takes a lot of building, a lot of hard work, a lot of sweat equity, a lot of hammers and nails, and of course, a lot of time. But the master plan of reconstruction cannot begin without words. Listen to me here. For words lay the foundation for meaning. They provide the support for imagination. They give the capacity to builders to dream and vision what they're building. As an illustration, do you remember, unfortunately, do you recall... The, the massacre of the Boston Marathon just a few years ago. Well, in, in the aftermath of that, it seemed like a whole city was rebuilt on two words. Hopes of people were united around a common phrase. Do you remember what that was? Boston strong. Yep. When destruction lies around us, we begin to rebuild with words. Most often, just like with Boston, we start with words. So perhaps the most important vocation in a construction project, whether that be the reconstruction of a city, a home, marriage, or faith, perhaps the most important vocation is the vocation of a wordsmith, the one who works with words. Now, you read with me. Isaiah's in a mess, man. Um, 
Here he is standing in the middle of a significant city. We call it Jerusalem. This passage of Scripture calls it Zion. But it's been totally ransacked by a foreign empire. The city's place, of course, is cemented as the center of worship for Israel. It's a sacred, the most sacred place for the people of God. For God dwells there and God's promise remains there. Songs of the righteous on Saturday swell up in worship to sing of God's faithfulness. And remembering God's ever-present help in times of danger here in Zion, the people would remember the promise that Moses received on Sinai from God, that God will make these people a great nation, that God will take them as his own people, and that God will establish a place for his people to flourish. It is in Zion, the pinnacle of place, that marked the people with distinction. But Isaiah's in a mess. For where he stands, this is not the city. (laughs) This is not the city that is around when he writes the words to the 62nd chapter of Isaiah. This is sometime after 539. By that time, Isaiah had been being put together for 150 years. Some think that this is the third author, the third person to put all the, to kind of construct this whole prophetic vision together. And Zion is in the shell of its glory days. It is not what it used to be. In fact, Zion hadn't been that city for a better part of two centuries. Those people in that city had been displaced. Their city's been ransacked beneath the evil Assyrian and Babylonian empire. Fortunately, some of you might know something about this type of destruction, this type of displacement. And something happens to us. Something happens to our memories, right? When they live under captivity for too long, imaginations become warped beneath the words of their oppressors. You see, their words, oppressive words, words of evil, they orbit around a false center and they create wrong identities. For Israel, this worked like this. Because of words, their value began to match their oppression. And because of words, they began to imagine that their worth matched their work and that their identity matched their labor. Because of words, they became known as slaves, foreigners, worthless, forsaken, desolate. They have no home. They have no place. Captivity, it strikes at identity. Historically speaking, no one that was listening to Isaiah's prophetic message here would have ever witnessed Zion the way it was promised in the days of old. In other words, when people of that faith community that Isaiah was writing to When people told stories about God's promises, it was never matched by what they saw. Words of glory, significance, and hope, well, it would be remembered, it would be read, and it would be seen in a place like this, but it would be seen amidst captivity. They would be remembering this great city, Zion, as they stood around the rubble of fallen rock. Boy, does this call into question 
the promise that God says comes through their identity as his people. See, words of hope offered to people in places of captivity and tragedy, well, they're empty. They're absolutely empty unless unless those words come from within the place of tragedy. Words built from within the ash heap, beneath the rubble, carrying the power to imagine something new, a restoration of hope. I just want to give you a fair warning that if this is your first time hearing me preach, I'm getting started. I might get really excited because I feel like I heard a word from the Lord this week. I might get real excited, Mark, but I'm not yelling at you, okay? I just got too much of Bobby Knight because I'm from Indiana, okay? I got too much Bobby Knight, too much of my dad in me, all right? So I, I don't, if you're a kid here and this is your first time hearing me preach, listen, I may get real excited, but I'm not mad. I'm just happy. I don't, I don't have any other way to express it. It's just who I am. But I'm about to get to the good stuff, so hang on here, okay? Yes! I've lost my place, so I'm here. I got it. Okay, here we go. So I do want to be careful, okay? I do want to be careful in drawing parallels between Israel's captivity and the things that hold us captive. To be held captive to a foreign military power is something most of us know nothing about. I want to be very careful. It's not apples to apples here. However, I do believe we often fall prey to captive identities and their words. And we begin to build lives. This is a cheap one, okay? And I have nothing wrong with the Chiefs. I'm going to root so hard for the Chiefs tonight, John. It's going to be silly how hard I'm going to root for the Chiefs. And if they don't win, I will be devastated. But words like Chiefs' kingdom, those words... Don't be silly. They build an imagination inside all of us. And I know we mean well, and I know all of us. Well, that's not the kingdom I serve. No, I get it. But in Isaiah's time, it was 150 years of words like that that had formed and shaped the people that I think, you know, for four years were good. That's how long that phrase has been around. We can shake that off. That's nothing to the people of God. But when our children's children's children have children and they're still singing Chief's Kingdom, there may be a whole new God in town when that day arrives. You see, when foreign words come in, words from other kingdoms and words from other powers, they begin to build lives from false centers that are not true to God's character and nature. They have us imagine with a different set of hope. They have us imagine in a different king that wears number 15. And he's a good one. He's a really, really good one. I, <laughs> I have nothing against the chiefs. It's just low-hanging fruit. I can't help it. I subscribe to the definition of sin offered by an old Nazarene saint, Mildred Bangs Winefield, who defines sin as love locked into the wrong center, the center of self. And so when our identities are built from words that are overindulged in self, self-will, self-power, self-love, uh-oh, it leads to paths of destruction. So what I propose this morning is that we need words that orbit around some other identity from another beginning. 
one where death and destruction does not run rampant. We need new words. See, the work of a prophet, someone like Isaiah, it's important work. You know what type of work it is? It's not necessarily work with hands. It's work with words. It's wordsmith. It's to uncover the true words about God that speak to a people no longer able to imagine that God's words match God's nature. See, on an emotional level, words can be comforting, but on a physical level, unless they match the character of integrity and truth and action, they are just words. They're just well wishes thrown out from the balcony, but far removed from the stage of action. Empty words spoken amongst the ruins, well, it lifts spirits, but it leaves the rubble. This is not what I'm proposing, that we offer thoughts and prayers to everything that needs thoughts and prayers. No, no. The prophet's words work with words might not be the physical work of construction, but it is a critical first step in reconstruction and in rebuilding. The prophet's work is the careful uncovering of words in a particular place. The prophet is called to listen well to the Spirit of God. And then to name the truth about God using specific language and in solidarity with the suffering. Words have to be offered from the ash heap. It's going to require something of us. We're going to have to move in. The prophet's words tell a story that is restorative, that is hopeful and empowering. You know why? Because the words, the words of the prophet, the words of the one who has hid himself in the safety of the Lord, the one who has heard the word from the secret place, well, those words are rooted in a holy presence whose beginning was long before the time of destruction. Come on now. In spite of Zion's condition. Amidst the rubble of a once proud city, Isaiah enters, stands there with dust caked on his feet with a fresh word, a fresh word about someone's nature and character, a word, a simple word, but a word that rebuilds the imagination of the people that the God of Zion is not disconnected from the God of Eden. And that the God of Isaiah is actually the same very God of the one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That the word of the future, this one's in bold, so listen up. <laughs> the word of the future was first spoken before the catastrophe. It might hit home even better, Cindy, if I said the word of your future was first spoken over you before whatever catastrophe you have experienced in life. Isaiah offers a new word that has been formed not in the imaginations of power, politics, and economy. No, Isaiah offers a word that's been formed in the very breath of God from the very beginning. You will be called by a new name, Isaiah says. 
Where does he get off on this? Because he knows someone that is bringing about new things and new creation. And someone who originates and comes and lives out of the very first garden who produces life that is flourishing and available for all. He knows someone from the very first place. And he says, wait, your name can't be forsaken. It doesn't match. No longer will people call you by that name. No longer will they call you forsaken or no longer will they call you desolate. No. Standing in the midst of rubble now, he wasn't in a picture-perfect city. He was in some place that had been held captive. Here he is, rock all around him, and he says, you will actually be called delight. (laughs) For God delights in you. Uh, Really? (laughs) And you, work myself out of breath, you will be called married for everything that God is, is attached to you. Promise, Ben, to promise, and hope, Bruce, to hope, and word to word. Marriage here, it's not really described as an institution in the Old Testament. Right? You're not going to go to the Old Testament and find out how much you ought to pay the officiant or how far in advance you need to order the venue. Okay, That's not going to, or like which paper company is going to give you the best Plurigraphist, okay? You're not gonna you're not gonna find you're not gonna find that in the Old Testament. Instead, what you'll find in the Old Testament is functionality. It's what does marriage mean? It's what is the purpose of it. Well, marriage is about commitment. It's about provision and it's about covenant. That's what you'll find out about marriage in the Old Testament. The name of the provider, and I'm almost done here, okay, y'all. I'm almost done. I'm not feeling too loose, so once I get done with this, I ought to be, well, we'll be good, okay? The name of the provider is bound to the one who needs provision, right? In the Old Testament, what you'll find out is that the name, is, it's always the male in that culture, but the name of the provider is bound to the one who needs provision. <laughs> the names of two are bound to a promise which creates a security, it creates a strength, and it creates a hope in times of danger. I don't know about you, but I could use a good word today. People need a good word about God. People need a good word about God said in the midst of rubble, not about someone else's rubble. People need a good word about God that shows up in the midst of their crud and offers a good word from being within the crud with them. Said in the midst of homes that are broken, living beside ones that are broken, said with lives that are hopeless, Said in the midst of relationship in which there's present active divisions that are hateful. Said in poverty that is crushing. In prejudices that are damning. Our world is desperate for a word of hope. Oh, that rises in truth in action. God needs words joined by prophetic speech and by compassionate presence. What I'm saying here is the last thing we need is another word of theory, another word of ideas, another word detached and out of place. I'll tell you what, Pastor, you ought to do this with your church. I'm sure it's a great idea. 
So why don't you show up with me on Tuesday? Let's pray together. Let's walk this place. I'll introduce you to the partners. Get to know their names. Let's do church that way. <laughs> because this is the place God has given us. <laughs> this is what God has blessed us with. Not that you all do that. I'm just saying as an example. We need words of presence that come from within. A testimony formed in experience. Words received in a particular place and formed in our memory. Words that come from a good beginning. From a time before destruction and sin. The names that others used to call Zion are old names. They no longer apply. Actually, it would be good for me as a minister of the gospel to tell you in faith, I've come to know that those names never applied. Never. Not even in a time of destruction did those names apply. The people of God need to learn that the names of forsaken and desolate, well, they never apply. That means for you too, you're a person of God. The name of forsaken or desolate does not apply. I don't care what middle school you go to. There is no one on social media that can tell you that you are actually forsaken in whatever words that they used, colorful language that I'm sure adorns it. In whatever form they tell you you are forsaken or desolate, that is not your name. For the names of destruction and failure and unfaithfulness and pain and hurt and sin and brokenness, friends, they don't apply. They don't apply because our story doesn't begin there. It's never began there. If you opened your Bibles today and the Bible started with Genesis 3, this would have to be a totally different sermon, but it doesn't start there. And we've been over this a million times, right? Seven times a phrase was said in the first chapter of Genesis. What was that? And what's the seventh time? That's where your story begins. That's where it starts. You can't be desolate. You can't be forsaken because you are very good. Not by your own merit, but something about the spirit that breathed us into being is good. And that breath is stuck with us. I can't no more change the breath that created me than I can change my skin color. Whether you accept it or not, the good breath of God has breathed over you, friend. And the names, oh, no, no, here I go. The names, the names maybe that someone called you this week. I am so sorry. The names I may have called you, please forgive me. It's just not true of who you are and who God says you are. Like Isaiah, we need to not stop praying for Zion. We call Zion Lee Summit, Shawnee, Raytown. You can stop praying for them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we need to not stop praying for our cities until... Their righteousness shines like the dawn, and their salvation blazes like a burning torch. Now replace the names of cities for the names of your children. Replace the names of the cities for the names of your parents. You know, it's okay to pray for your parents. <laughs> maybe, maybe not Wendy. She's got it figured out, but this parent needs your prayers. Children, pray for your parents. Parents, pray for your children. Those that don't have an immediate family like that here, present amongst you. 
pray. Pray for your co-workers and pray for your friends. Pray for this church and for the other churches in this city. Pray for the witness of God's people, regardless of what church they go to. Pray for the witness of God's people to rise up and to begin to speak true words. Words formed from the beginning. So listen, don't, I don't know if you checked Twitter this week, but if you checked Twitter this week, there was this ridiculous little tweet flowing around about grumbling or something or another. Listen, listen to this. Don't stop crying out and speaking out. Don't stop with your lament. And don't stop with your sackcloth and ashes. If you see something that does not look like Eden, call it out and cry out for God to show up until it is redeemed, whether that is in yourself or in another. Man, if you see something, I think that's a type of grumbling that is okay. <laughs> that type of complaining is all right. God, fix this mess. It ain't how you see it. All I see when I look at those potholes are forsaken parking lot, <laughs> but that's not how God sees it. So let's get a little ridiculous. Show up one Sunday morning. I usually get here early. We can walk the parking lot. I've done it before. I've stood over the potholes before and given them to Jesus. I know I have to look like a weirdo. In fact, Chrissy, one time a cop came. It was early. It's like before 5. And I'm standing over a parking lot. I'm giving it to Jesus. <laughs> and this cop pulls up and goes, uh, Sir, do you got business around here? <laughs> Just praying for a parking lot. Um, the people of Zion, the, us, me and you, we belong to a God whose memory, Mark, it's as old as the promise. God's memory goes back to the dust in Adam's breath. Praise the Lord. God's memory does not stop with 15-year-old Jake Edwards because that would be bad news when I go to heaven. A new name has to be given to match the unconditional character of their God. So, just like Abram and Peter and Jacob, who, of course, became Abraham, the rock is what they called Peter, and Israel is what they called Jacob. The new name will reflect character and nature. The new name will reflect image, and it will be formed with a new word, and our new name will be complete and utter transformation. For Cap, your new name will be delight. I would just wrap it up right there, but I got so jacked up when I wrote this last part, I got to tell you. We know that God elevated his one and only son to a place of highest honor. We read about this in Philippians chapter 2. And that God gave him... His son, Jesus, the name that is above all other names. Not Jesus, but Christ. And that all will bow before him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will no longer be called forsaken. Because we'll be called married. Married to the name that is above all other names. So who gets off thinking they can call you forsaken? Because you belong to Christ, whom every knee will bow. Do you know who you are? You are a child of God. No wonder he delights in you. Shoot, I delight in you. You are beautiful and you are good. And the capacity within you, New Beginnings Church, is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Why? Not because you're just talented. You are 
But because you belong to the one who sees delight in you, marries you to his promise, bounds his flesh to your flesh, bounds his heart to your heart. In Christ, God marries his character and nature to us. And we take God's name as our own. Guys, that's a, that's a miracle. It's good news. His name will now become our provision. His promise will be bound to our lives. Our safety, our security, our hope and future Well, John, they're all, every bit of that is wedded to God's great name and God's great character. So God moves in and with new words. What I mean by that, Zeke, is that God moves into your situation. He comes in right where you are. He doesn't offer a word disconnected from your place. He enters into your place no matter how broken your place may be. God moves in. And with new words, he changes our name to his own through the power and love of Christ. He takes us unto himself. And he transforms old crusty Jake Edwards into a bride. Kind of cute bride, ain't I, Danny? (laughs) I just made it weird. God, God makes us a promise. And we will enter into his love and into his character in this marriage. In Jesus, in you, in me. God takes delight, yes, delight. God will delight in his children, and God will delight in his place. Even in the face of destruction and muck and mire, God will delight. How? Why? Because the children never belong to anyone else. They never belong to any other narrative. God knows that. We don't know that. So it's my job to tell you. You don't belong to that story. We don't belong to any other language than the language of God. We don't belong to any other empire than the kingdom of God. There is no other story in which we belong to. In Christ, we are held to first words. In the first word, made up of the very first word. In Christ, we become the word of new beginnings, pun intended. We become the word of fresh starts and commitment, love, hope, joy, and promise. Offered to a world... Bruce, wouldn't you say this world needs a fresh new word? It's a scandal, Shelley, but God thinks so too, and he elects you. He chooses us. I don't know why. I don't know why, but the new word that God has to offer to zip code 64063 is in part, Jeff, housed right here. The corner of Chipman Commons, Lee Summit, New Beginnings Church, the people of God, we become the fresh new word. So don't just say these words or type these words. Go out into the rubble. Find a place that needs you and tell the good story of where good began and to whom each child belongs. You are a child of God in whom God delights. Our hope is in Him. Praise be to God. Pastor Justin, come.